Hey everyone, you made it to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Wasmus Center Voices of Idaho podcast. We're glad to have you. The following are two experiences, two stories, that have influenced Idaho human rights activist Joanne Kachigian to become the upstander that she is today. Please enjoy. Two experiences influenced me to become an upstander. First, I'm a child of genocide survivors, the Armenian Genocide of 1915, the first genocide of the 20th century when nearly two million Christian Armenians were annihilated by the Turks of the Ottoman Empire. Turkey still denies the genocide. My mother, Juhar, was 12 years old when her entire family of 46 people was massacred. She was the sole family survivor. She watched her father and brothers and the other men of the town being seized and dragged off. Then she heard the gunshots that announced their execution. The women and children and the elderly were left without defenders. Juhar was discovered the next morning hiding in a pit and forced at gunpoint to join the others on a treacherous 10-month death march over mountains and desert to Aleppo, Syria. My mother saw the severed arms, legs, and hands of butchered Armenian girls floating in the river or washed up on the shore. She had to drink that same water to survive. She saw mothers who were too weak from starvation and exhaustion to carry their babies any further, so they handed them to strangers passing by, hoping their babies would somehow survive. After walking for ten months, Juhar was purchased as a slave by a rich Turk, she was stripped of her Armenian identity. She was forced to give up her Armenian name and language and become Turkified. About six years later, she asked to move to an orphanage run by American missionaries who posted the names of the orphans on church doors and in American newspapers. Two brothers who had fled to America before the genocide discovered her name in the newspaper and arranged her marriage to a friend a naturalized Armenian-American citizen who would later become my father. This terrified, traumatized young girl who had arrived with her name pinned on her dress like many other immigrants on the ship, met and married a total stranger who was 12 years her senior. But I didn't know my mother's story until I was 42 years old when I persuaded her to let me record it on a tape recorder. She had been silent all those years. She refused to talk to me and said, better to forget. But she was an eyewitness to history, and I wanted my family and the world to know her story. My brave and stoic, humble mother would be shocked to know that her child, her story lives on today at a listening station at the Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial here in Boise. My father, Sarkis, spoke five languages. He was a foreman at a factory where many immigrants worked. In Turkey, he had witnessed the beheading of his brother by a Turkish soldier. This no doubt contributed to his alcoholism and probable depression, or PTSD, which led to his suicide when I was five years old. My mother was left to raise their seven children alone. She was too proud to accept public assistance, so my older brothers worked in the factory while they were in high school so we could continue to live in the company house. My sister, Natty, at age 18, assumed the role of our surrogate parent. 
The resilience of my parents and other family members no doubt influenced me to be an upstander. The second influential factor was my idealism. In 1961, during my senior year at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a recruiter from the newly established Peace Corps visited the campus. I secretly applied, fearing humiliation in case I failed to be accepted for training. And then one morning, there it was, a telegram inviting me to Peace Corps training at the University of Pittsburgh for the first Peace Corps program in Liberia, West Africa. I hugged my mother and screamed, I'm going to Africa, I'm going to Africa. She replied sternly in her broken English, Van daughter in Africa is enough, because my sister Anna was a medical missionary in Swaziland, South Africa at the time. America is best country. You stay here, get office job. You marry nice boy. Why are you going to throw away your college business, your college degree? You're going to live in dirt, sickness, disease. I kept protesting I wanted to help people and learn about the world. I didn't realize that she wanted to protect me from hardship and danger, as she had known. Finally, wagging her finger in my face, she proclaimed, you gonna come home on first airplane because you no can pick up your underwear. <laughs> I remembered her challenge whenever I faced adversity in Africa. I lived for two years in the African bush in a mud house without electricity or running water. The Peace Corps opened my eyes to the unfairness of life in terms of the lack of medical care, the high infant mortality rate, malnutrition, malaria, lack of sanitation, poor or non-existent education, inadequate government, and more. I met brave students who walked five miles to school walking on their hands and deformed knees. And I worshiped in my village church with lepers from the largest leper colony in West Africa. It was one of the most profound and rewarding experiences of my young life, and it helped prepare me for the human rights challenges that lay ahead in America. My name is Joanne Kachigian. I'm a human rights activist in Boise and the grandmother of five. The following is a song by Kevin Arnsman. The song starts with an abridged version of Martin E. Muller's First They Came quotation, and then, as the artist describes, it continues with a contemporary perspective based on the biblical character Esther. This is For Such a Time as This. And as usual, to submit a song to be aired on the podcast, you can do so at info at wasmuscenter.org. I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists. Speak. 
speak out for me. Thank you, Joanne. This is the Voices of Idaho with Dan Prinzing and Adam Thompson. Hey there. Season two, we're focusing on being an upstander. Joanne, you have just shared with us a background story that when folks see you, they don't know that. They don't realize that story that so shaped who and what you are. Do you think that somewhere in your DNA, the attitude of being an upstander was just always there? I talked with my older brother, Martin, who's 94 years old recently, and he thinks it was something innate. You know, we grew up in this immigrant home, 
And we were just taught to be good citizens, be honest, keep your clothes clean, because we didn't have much clothes. You know, you had to wear the same dress over and over. And so we think the example of our parents, somehow that just must have, um, because all of us turned out to be, you know, decent people. So it is that shaping force, whether acknowledged at the time or not, it's just this was the environment in which you were growing up. This is what we learn and carry from that. What are the actions that you chose then? How were you going to show that you're an upstander? Well, setting an example, treating people well, the way I would expect to be treated. And I have to say, I was always treated well. Um, We were respected, uh, even though we were very poor, because we just had high principles. And... Uh, law-abiding and caring about other people. Well, we always articulate in our upstander programming that it is the act of being an upstander, the ACT. And what you've just illustrated for us, it is that T in the act, which is teach by example of how you live your life. That that's how we show others that we are an upstander. It's because it's who we are. It's the example we provide. So what might be another example of when folks have looked at you, your career, your involvement in the community, when did they see that upstander step up? You mean at the beginning or just later? Or? Yeah. At, any, at any point, at any point in your life. In my younger years, half a lifetime ago, Um, That would be like in the late 60s. We had the Vietnam War. We marched in the streets of Iowa City where my uh, former husband was working on his PhD. And um, we pushed our little boy John in a stroller and we were protesting the war and we were shouted down by people lining up on the streets. And, um, but we just felt the war was immoral and wrong. And, um, so that was in the late 60s. And then also I got involved in the Nestle infant formula boycott. Mm. Um, you know, they were trying to push formula in developing countries instead of um, natural breastfeeding and things like that. So in the poor, impoverished countries, you, they had billboards advertising, you know, be modern and do it. The, you know. So then when women had their babies, they were given a, an initial supply of infant formula. But when that ran out, then the mothers would dilute the formula they had because they didn't have money to replenish the supply. So they over-diluted, and then that ended up with mental. It affected the mental development of the babies because they didn't have nourishment. And... Um, I've been really involved with refugees in the city of Boise. I love tutoring children at uh, three different schools, refugee Mm -hmm. children, because I could empathize with what they had come through and just found them to be remarkable, resilient um, children. I'm going to pick up on a word you just used there, because we talk so much in the Wasman Center programming, can we foster empathy? Can we cultivate a sense, because empathy is very different than sympathy. I can be sorry for you because that's your story. But I can't walk in those shoes. It's not my story. So I almost become distant from it. But empathy suggests there is a core or commonality of understanding. Maybe the stories are different, but we still feel the pain 
that we be there's a spark of understanding in that. How, do you find that that is the base for a lot of your actions as an upstander? Is that sense of empathy? That could be. Like recently, like four years ago, I was arrested at the Capitol building for uh, being part of Add the Words. We, um, it was an act of civil disobedience. We knew we were going to be arrested and uh, fined, and we could face a $1,000 fine or go to prison for six months, but we were willing to risk that because for the sake of uh, human dignity and equality, I just couldn't imagine. Um, I can go anywhere and do whatever I want and be accepted, but yet there's a segment in our society that is um, criticized and attacked and maligned and all that. So we we went and had a we held we blocked all the doors to the Senate chambers for three hours until they told us to move or be arrested. And so um, the troopers came in and asked us if we were willing to move, and we all stood tall with our hand over our mouth, and we refused to move. So we were all arrested, and. Um, my children didn't know anything about this, and um, they were shocked, you know, because it was on the 5 o'clock news, <laughs> made the national news too. But anyway, we, um, empathy is the word, you, yeah. Um, four of us straight grandmothers from my church were arrested. We were among those 44, the first 44 to be arrested for, on behalf, and, and our legislature still uh, refuses to enact any legislation to grant these equal rights to them. Well, let me go with that a little bit because there is that interesting aspect of when do we intersect with other communities. So as you just said, okay, you're not a member of the LGBTQ community in the state, yet you're actively standing up for the cause, the right to dignity. Yeah. What causes that point of intersection? It's not your story, but it's your cause. We're all the same kind of people. We're all uh, the same family, of, like we're saying, that we're part of the human race. There shouldn't be a distinction between me and them. It's, um, it's us. And so um, we have to fight for that. Yeah. You can't let this go on and on and on. And people are misdirected. Either they don't know anyone who is LGBT, or they've been listening to other people and believing lies and just it's just and so we have to be a voice for them and help at my church the pastor asked um those of us who got arrested the four of us you know could you stay after church today and we'll have a forum and we'll have people ask questions about why did you do this you know why did you do so we have several gay people at my church they came afterwards and with tears rolling down their face to think that we would go to fight for them mm -hmm. to be treated like human beings i know in another episode of the voices of idaho we actually talked in terms, it's always a question that I have in our research and programming. When does the them become an us? When do those that have been viewed as the other, all of a sudden we recognize, no, that's us. 
We're all in this shared experience, this shared journey. It is a part of our core humanity. So I so appreciate that in your story because I think that is in a point that fosters empathy. When I recognize and I don't see difference, but I see this shared journey. That I say, this is who we are together. Mm-hmm. We stand up for each other. And you're missing out when you don't recognize them and the contributions they make to our society. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's a gift to get to know, to expand your horizons, I guess you could say. Just get to open your minds a little bit. So in your uh, in initial in our conversation, you introduced that... You were marching in the streets with your son, John, in the stroller. Your grandmother of five. What are the lessons you want your children and grandchildren to learn? I want them to know that they need to speak out whenever they see injustice, cruelty, you know, racism. You know, we're living in turbulent times right now, and it's all around us. If you sit back and just observe this, you're not really there. And um, my kids are proud of me. Mm-hmm. You know, They didn't understand why I was out there doing all this. And also, I wanted to go to the vigil on June 1st, where the 5,000 people were. And they, they implored me, Mom, please don't go because of the COVID virus. They said, we don't want to lose you. So I gave in to them, and I stayed home. And um, I still uh, feel guilty about not being there because I've, you know, I, I needed, I should have, I wanted to be there, but I think I've been forgiven for not being there. <laughs> yeah, because. Because um, yeah. your children are right. We can't afford to lose you in our community. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk in terms of the choice to be an upstander uh, because we know those that choose to be a bystander, that's a choice. They're choosing to do nothing. Uh, we would always add to that discussion in that choice, they have become complicit with injustice. Right. It's in their choosing to be a bystander, they're in essence giving agreement yes. to the injustice. So choosing to be an upstander, though, also comes with choices. In other words, we don't necessarily make the assumption that as upstanders, we all have to do the same thing. It's just that we each do something what would be your lesson for the next generation? What are the things that they could do as upstanders? When I speak at high schools, um, I always challenge them at the end that when they see injustice or persecution or bullying, do you just sit there and just kind of look away and be glad that it's not you that's on the receiving end of that? Or do you speak up and try to stop it? And then I'll, I, I, then I'll refer to the add the words thing. I'll say, you know, it wasn't easy to go down to the Capitol building and, you know, be there and get arrested. And, and this one boy practically fell out of his chair. He said, you were arrested? You know, yeah, because here I'm this little old lady. You know, how could I have done something wrong? But uh, I do want them to know that they have options and choices and to try to do it for the betterment of our society and in all my talks I do issue that challenge to people where would we be I mean that's how you get change is when you're out there so I'm going to take us back to where this episode began 
What do you see as the lessons to be learned from the Armenian genocide? It all started because the Armenians were scapegoated. You know, and it's like somebody always has to wield power over another group. And they were a minority, even though they were so productive and, you know, success, successful people. The men in charge of the government decided that they needed to be, you know, annihilated, destroyed, because they were interfering with the plan to have a, a homogenous society. And um, it's just really hard to understand how they could carry out such a, a brutal act like the Holocaust, which came 25 years later, and that the genocide you know, served as the model for Hitler. But when people don't get involved or try to stop what's happening, that's why it keeps continuing. How many genocides have we witnessed? And then they say never again. And that's such a hollow phrase because it's totally ignored. It, it, it's, you know, we see it always happening. And where so. are the upstanders? Joanne, thank you so much. This has been The Voices of Idaho. Unfortunately, the Armenian Genocide is often called the Forgotten Genocide. But of course, it still looms deeply in the minds and hearts of the Armenians today. If you'd like to learn more about the Armenian Genocide, more information can be found on history.com or even by searching for the Wasman Center's Spiral of Injustice Words Have Weight e-booklet. Huge thank you to Kevin Arnsman for letting us use their music in this episode. And again, if you'd like to submit a song to be used in the podcast, you can do so at info at wasmuscenter.org. And of course, huge thank you to Joanne Kachigian for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. And until then, don't forget to act. Can we walk this road together? I can't travel it alone. I need someone beside me to help me find my way back home. Cause this world is full of anger. I've been walking through some pain So if we walk this road together We can find our way back home again It's a home of many colors No ceilings and no walls there is room for all our brothers With no graffiti in the halls We can share this road together So if you walk with me, my friend With you right here Beside me, we'll find a home with peace again. 
It's a home of many colors No ceilings and no walls But there is room for all our brothers With no graffiti in the halls We can share this world so if you walk with me, my friend With you right here beside me We'll find our home with peace again